We are a blessed people, and I'm thankful this morning that we get to talk about a church that is suffering. Let's read verses 8 through 11, and we'll pray. Also, a couple weeks ago, I told you that they taught me to say a Spanish sentence when I was in Ecuador. The only thing I could communicate to them after we read the Bible was this is the word of the Lord. And before we read, I just happened to find, I don't know if you were the service that heard that or not, but I did say it at some point in the last couple weeks. Well, I was in a 1 Corinthians commentary this week and I found the saying that they taught me to say. So I'm going to speak in tongues real quick. But this is the word of the Lord. Esta es la palabra de Dios. Amen. I like it. Verse 8, let's go. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this morning there are many gathered together brothers and sisters who care deeply about your word, who don't want to only hear certain portions of it, but want it all, want the whole counsel of God, even when its message is something that may be unpleasant to our ears. May your double-edged sword this morning cut deeply into us. May we see, may we hear what the Spirit says, Father, in new ways that bring seriousness to our hearts and minds as we reflect upon living for you this past week and moving into this next week, what needs to change in us. God, grow us. Build steadfastness in your people. Father, purify us through your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Real quick, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, because we're going to start here and set up the context for Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. When I was a young man, I prayed stupid prayers. Because when you're young, you're just naive and you don't know what you don't know, amen? Amen. So I would pray prayers, Jan. I thought they were gigantic, intelligent, wonderful prayers that God would see my heart and my dedication to him. So I would say, Lord, help me to suffer in your name. 
God, whatever your will would be, just bring it, pile it on. I mean, make your name great. Let me show the world what it's like to suffer for you. Lean in. That's a stupid prayer. <laughs> Don't ever pray that prayer. But just because we don't pray that prayer doesn't mean that suffering, tribulation, poverty, that these things are, that we're exempt from them in life. Yeah, this sermon you're not going to hear on a Christian television station this morning where they only talk about King David and him conquering the cities around him. Right? More than half of the Bible, we've got entire books of the Bible dedicated to the subject of human suffering and Christian suffering. Suffering is a part of life. And in some generations, the entire church suffers great persecution like the church in Smyrna that we read about in the book of Revelation. This past week, I was doing some traveling. I asked Sarah what she wanted for her birthday, and her mom's got kind of a bucket list, and she's getting older, and she's never been up to northern New England. So Sarah said, let's take mom up to northern New England. She can check that off her bucket list while she's still mobile and can get around. So that's what we did last week. Thanks for letting us be gone to do that with her. It was precious times, uh, you know, probably one of the last trips like that we'll be able to take with her. So, but we were up north, we did five states in a week, how many of you are from up north, don't raise your hand because I'll offend you next, <laughs> I love going up there, I love to visit, lots of history, but boy is it dirty, <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts every three shops, what is the deal with Dunkin' Donuts, but we got to drive through Got to drive through Dartmouth and Harvard, so we're wicked smart now. <laughs> Something happened as we were driving through. They don't know how to clean in northern New England. I don't know if you know that or not, but every 7-Eleven is just the filthiest bathroom that you've ever been in in your life. And I'm in one of these filthy bathrooms, and, and there's some stuff on the wall. And normally stuff on the wall I don't even pay attention to, but something stuck out to me on this wall. It was the anarchist A symbol. And most of you probably know what that is. When I was in high school, anarchy was a cool thing, and people loved the sex pistols, and just, what, that's punk rock, and ah, just be crazy, and no order. And, blah. and, you know, anarchy meant, even back then, it was still kind of safe. I remember the first time I saw the Anarchist Cookbook. You guys remember that? Outlawed in the States. It had to be hand-copied and written. It was passed around. Somebody in my high school got one. It's a book that tells you how to protest and make a difference and make bombs. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, the, the stuff that we were reading even back in the 90s. But anarchy is, no, there shouldn't be any social order. It, it, it's a symbol for chaos. And so it caught my eye. But what caught my eye even more well, there's two phrases written above this big anarchist A. And I think it's actually some pretty good commentary on where we're at culturally in our country. The two phrases above this A, no gods and no masters. 
And as I read that, it just kind of, it kind of punched me in the face. Because there was a person on the other side of that pen who actually believes that the more they use their free will to do whatever it is they want at any time, it's actually going to make the world a better place. No gods and no masters. We live in a world that wants zero accountability to anything or anyone. And my heart just kind of broke as I stood there in that dirty New England bathroom. Knowing that there are people out there who genuinely think that whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, is the right way forward and is going to make the world good. And I sat there and I thought, God, thank you that I'm not one of those people. I just had this little moment of, God, that's who I would be if it had not been for your grace. That Here's how to know if you're a Christian this morning. The fact of Jesus Christ leaving you alone, the fact of somebody disproving God, the fact that, that God may be gone from your life forever should scare you to death. And yet it is the rallying cry of so many in our world today. I say all that to say this. We have had a blessed couple hundred years on this side of the world. God's word, as much as they try to erase, it's found in all of our documents. They can take it off the the, the, the courtrooms if they want, but just throughout our history, God's word is so present and, and prevalent. And for a long time, it's been a good thing to have a Christian fish on your business card. Amen? There's a lot of people who aren't Christians that put that fish there just to get your business. But we're moving into a day and have been. This isn't, this isn't something that's coming. This is something here. It started way back when presidents started talking about new world order and globalization. And in order to, to, uh, to, to be the nation that brings all this together, we got to get rid of anything that reeks of Christianity. The Muslims can stay Muslims and all the other religions, they don't have to change. But we're going to change because Christianity is offensive and we started calling ourselves a post-Christian nation. And tribulation is not coming, it's here. I mean, just this decade, there have been governors who tried to pass laws where pastors have to write their sermon notes out and submit to her office before they're preached to make sure nothing offensive or no hate speech is in it. Pastors in Canada have been arrested for opening church. Pastors in America have been threatened. It's not coming. It's here. So we're not praying for persecution, amen? But we do need to be ready if it comes because we're not exempted just because we are Christians. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of my favorite portions This great faith chapter. And it's through faith that God ordains some people in certain generations to conquer cities. 
And that's what we're going to believe here in Ackworth and in Kennesaw and Woodstock and Cartersville. We're going to believe and we're going to pray and we're going to have faith that God's word is power and it'll break the hearts of sinners and they will come rushing in to, to meet God and repent of their sin. We are going to believe that God's going to give us this city to make his name great. Amen. And boy, do I hope that's going to be the reality that plays out over the next 20 years. But Hebrews 11 is also full of people who in faith died on the battlefield. Who in faith were martyred and burned alive and sawn in two. We're not praying for that, but we need to be ready for it. To open this up, look at Matthew chapter 11, because we find this story about John the Baptist, an incredible man called by God, used by God, followed God's words to a T. I mean, this guy memorized every word Jesus said. And he was a mighty battle axe. In the hands of the Lord. But here in Matthew chapter 11, we find him in prison. Just a big apology to all the prosperity people listening or in the room. Whew, boy, that's a dumb theology. Read all the Bible, not just part of it. Chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard, this is John the Baptist, in prison. John the Baptist just weeks before was out with Jesus. The crowds gathered as John proclaimed, thus saith the Lord. The, the religious and even the irreligious would come to see this this. This uh, eccentric man who lived in the wilderness, who wore the, the furs of animals and ate only honey and was baptizing even religious Jews to prepare them for the coming of their Messiah. John was in the spotlight, but now John's not in the spotlight. John is in prison. And sometimes your brain goes to weird places when suffering and tribulation come into your life. Things that John knew for certain at one point in his life, he was scratching his head about now. Prison will do that. Persecution will do that. Which is why when we're not in persecution, we've got to think on these things. So we can know what's coming. John's having an existential crisis. Because Jesus, he knows Jesus is out there. And he knows Jesus is the Savior. And he knows Jesus can save him. So why is he still there? Which, by the way, why is John in prison at this point? He's in prison because he rightly spoke out about the sexual immorality of one of their governors. When Herod the Great, who had a huge empire and a great relationship with Rome, 
When he died, his area was divided up between some of his sons. The two sons in question in John's life were Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Herod Antipas falls in love with Philip's wife, his brother's wife, and just, it's kind of like a hell and a Troy thing, just steals him and marries her himself. And John said, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong. And because we were all taught in Sunday school, when you do the right thing, God makes everything better. Why do we try to whitewash everything? Why can't scripture just stand for itself? You know, we got a whole generation of therapy puppy people that can't deal with truth, but this is true. John's in prison for doing the right thing, for saying the right thing, for standing up for God when godlessness was rampant. And it didn't get better for him, it got worse. The, the, one of the craziest things you can tell your children is the will of God is the safest place you'll ever be. Because it's just not true. Sometimes the will of God is the most dangerous place that you can be. John the Baptist is feeling the danger of his right Speaking, thus says the Lord, as he sits in prisons, while Jesus just seems to be gallivanting around from town to town, and the crowds that used to follow him are now following Jesus. So John's scratching his head. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now listen. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, back in uh, the beginning of all the Gospels, knows exactly who Jesus is. When Jesus shows up on the scene, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus says, You need to baptize me, John the Baptist goes, No way, you need to baptize me. I'm not even worthy to, to strap your sandals together. You baptize me, Jesus said, this is the way it has to be. John the Baptist heard the Father speak from heaven at the baptism of Christ. This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist, at an earlier point in his life, knew exactly who Jesus was. But persecution has come. Tribulation has come. Prison has come. And now John's scratching his head going, are you the guy? Are you really him? Because if you're him, why am I still in here? Why haven't you saved me? You could just speak a word and everything would be different. And God could just speak a word. But he doesn't. God's will for John has shifted. Look at Jesus' reply in verse 4. And Jesus answered them. He's answering the disciples of John the Baptist who have come in John's name saying, Are you the one or is it somebody else? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And Jesus just gives a little report about his ministry. To which I'm sure John was like, that's great and all, but I'm still in prison. 
Jesus says, go and tell John, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now notice this next little sentence. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What is Jesus talking about? How could any of that stuff be offensive? It's not to us, but we're not the ones in prison. We're not the ones getting our eyes open. We're not the ones receiving their dead raised back to life. As Jesus did that many times for different people. And there's something that is left out because Jesus is quoting here from his first sermon, a sermon he preached. You can find it in Luke 4 uh, where he preaches from Isaiah chapter 61 where the good news is going to be, I'm here. This is fulfilled in your hearing, he says in his first sermon. The good news is going to be preached to the poor. The blind eyes are going to be opened. But there was something else from Isaiah 61 that doesn't get mentioned in this list. To free the captives, to bring liberty to those in captivity. He leaves that out of the checklist of all the good works that he's doing in the cities around. And he says, John, blessed is the one. Listen, in just a second, we're not going to read any more of this, but Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest man who had lived up to Christ. I mean, this man said, follow Jesus instead of me. I must decrease. Jesus must increase. John the Baptist did everything. He was Elijah, prophesied in the book of Malachi, the forerunner of Christ. He prepared the way, and now God says, you've done a great job, but your time is over. My will for you is done. It's time to bring this thing to a close. Don't be offended by this. I know in our world it just makes sense that we should be in charge of our lives. But who knows better Creator God or the creation he spoke into existence and formed with his own hands and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Christian want, Christians want God's will to be done. We pray the same prayer Jesus prayed. Jesus was not exempt from suffering, from persecution, and from trial. Although he prayed, as we all should, may this cup pass from me. But he also prayed, but not my will. Yours be done. God's will. God is good. God's will is greater than anything that we could come up with. Our choices only lead to more destruction, to less accountability, to more burning down of, of cities. God's will must be priority, whether it's conquering a city by faith or being burned alive by faith. Let's move now to Revelation chapter 2. Esta es la palabra de Dios. Brent, I don't like this sermon. It's not as good as your other sermons. But it's true. 
And we don't want persecution, but we need to be ready as God's people have been ready in the past. Let's talk about the church at Smyrna. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna ride. Now let's talk about Smyrna for just a second. Smyrna is just 35 miles north from Ephesus, the logical next stop for these letters to the churches in Asia Minor to be written. Smyrna, the church there, probably planted by Paul on his third missionary journey, although we're not sure. It could be someone from Ephesus who heard Paul preach the gospel and then took the gospel up. That, that happened. Some of the church in Colossae, uh, that happened. Someone heard Paul preach and then went and took it back home, uh, and, a, and a church was formed. But Paul's ministry in Asia Minor clearly brought all of these churches, brought the gospel to these cities. Smyrna was a famous place. Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, some of the famous oldest uh, uh, works that we have from the Greek Empire. Homer was from Smyrna. Smyrna was an incredibly beautiful, it was small, it was smaller than Ephesus, but they had the largest stadium in Smyrna. People traveled from all over. It was a harbor city like Ephesus, so lots of trade and lots of wealth. And everything they did, Smyrna had the spirit of ought. Have you ever known someone with the spirit of ought? They know how things ought to be done. About everybody in my family has the spirit of ought. Right? But they did, everything they did, they did well. And the people of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, they love Smyrna. They love going to Smyrna. They love doing business in Smyrna. All the buildings. People would go just to see the gorgeous architecture of this very pagan but religious city. Did you know you can be pagan and religious and superstitious at the same time? Religion is superstition. That's why we preach the gospel and not religion. Amen? No? Well, you need to find another church. They had all of these temples to all of these Greek gods. They're very spiritual people. And they were even called by the Roman Empire the pride of Asia. I mean, what an honor. When, when all of the, the cities in Asia Minor, including Ephesus, big, 250,000 people in Ephesus, big cities, when they were vying for who got to build the temple to the emperor of Rome because Rome became a cult, a religious cult of the emperor. Temples were built to the emperor and Roman peoples who living in these cities were to come by and to make offerings to their Caesar. And when they made their offerings, they were to say, Curios Caesar, which means Caesar is Lord. They worshiped Caesar as a god although he was a mere mortal man. This is Smyrna. And God says, write to this church in Smyrna and say this, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Somebody very specific is speaking to the church in Smyrna. Jesus himself identifies himself just as he did in chapter 1. Look at verses 17 and 18 in chapter 1. Of course, when John sees Jesus reveal himself, he falls at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last 
and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus has no complaint against the church in Smyrna. Last week when we were studying Ephesus, Jesus has a complaint against most of these churches. In fact, only two of the seven he has no complaint against, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And he opens up this letter by reminding them who he is. And we need the same reminder today. He is the first and the last. There's nothing before him. There's nothing after him. All things in space and time are contained in him, including us, our lives, our generation, our families, our church, our city, our nation. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is the first and the last. He's not wringing his hands in heaven wondering how everything is going to shake out. He reminds this church before he gets into a very serious diatribe that he is with them and he knows and he is and he exists and there's nothing outside of him and he is with them. His sovereign will is being played out in the world that they are a part of. What they are about to endure should not surprise them. He is the first. He is the last. He's the one who died and came back to life. Not even death can stop our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No enemy can. Even death was defeated. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. Amen. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in the lives, the hearts, the minds of every believing man, every believing woman who has set their faith upon Jesus Christ, the first and the last. He defeated death, and so will we. Jesus reminds them he is sovereign God. He knows what's coming, and they should not be afraid of what's coming. He is in control. Verse 2. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. A few moments ago, I talked about that little fish on a business card. Well, in Smyrna, that little fish didn't mean things were going to go better for you. It meant things were going to go worse. Persecution throughout Rome was rampant against Christians. Christians who had businesses. People would stop coming and supporting and trading and bartering and buying from Christians. In a wealthy area like Smyrna. Christians couldn't sustain their own businesses and when people found out they were Christians, uh, if they were employees, the employer, if they found out were Christians, would fire them. These people in coming to Jesus, the church in Smyrna, just in coming to Jesus and identifying by his name meant economic ruin for these people. And they endured You think about our soft world today. Who who could endure the loss of wealth, 
the loss of salary, the loss of the prestige of owning a business. These people were doing that. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. How can Jesus say these things? The entire book of Hebrews tells us it's because he's our better high priest, our great high priest who identifies. There's a reason God didn't stay in heaven sitting on a throne. There's a reason he stood up from the throne and came all the way down to where we are. So he could identify with our Jesus. Don't think as you're praying at home in the midst of trial and in the midst of tribulation that Jesus can't understand. Because what does Satan love to do? Satan loves to tell us you're all alone. Nobody gets what you're dealing with. Nobody can understand what you're going through. And even if there is truth, most of the time it's not. But even if it's true to all the people in your sphere of influence, it's never true of Jesus Christ. He knows the anxieties of life. His sweat turned to blood in a garden. Jesus knows relationship pains. Jesus knows not being able to sleep at night. Jesus knows knives in backs and the pain that those knives bring. Jesus, to these Christians, I know, hear the word of the Lord today. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Listen, I don't know where you're personally at this morning, but here's one thing I do know. In Christ, all, Ephesians 1, all spiritual blessings have been bestowed upon us. We're not in some New England bathroom thinking we'd be better off without God. No, we have God. We are seated in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 2, with Christ. This is why we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for God is with us. We may be poor in this world, because look, chapter 13 is going to talk. A nation that doesn't want gods or masters, they're going to hate anybody who believes in God. And brings God's word and the accountability that comes with God's word. That's why Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. They put me on a tree between two thieves. Don't be surprised. Can't buy or sell. The nations come against Christians. They can't buy or sell. Poverty is a part of the tribulation we, we find throughout Revelation. Not just for Smyrna, but for lots of Christians. All through Macedonia, in their poverty, they still gave uh, to the amazement of Paul. It's part of it. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Hear the word of the Lord. You know, we were just in New Hampshire. Walked through Breakers and the Elms and Marble House and all those Gilded Age mansions that people with way too much money owned. I mean, these mansions are ridiculous. Examples of the Gilded Age. I mean, talking gold leaf on wallpaper. 
and they weren't even their homes. They were cottages that they would go to for a couple months out of the year. I bought the book on Cornelius Vanderbilt because I just got to know more about this guy. (laughs) I mean, this guy's gift was making money. But Jesus clearly teaches in Matthew chapter 6, don't build up treasure where moth and rust destroy. I don't know Cornelius, his life, if he loved Jesus or not, but I know if he didn't love Jesus and could come back, he'd trade every dollar he ever made to know him and to, to praise him with the breath that he had in this life. It doesn't matter what we have down here. What matters is our treasure is built in Christ. He's the pearl of great price. There's nothing greater than knowing him, being saved by him, being in relationship with him. No more enmity between God and us through Christ Jesus. We should be the most courageous people on planet Earth knowing that we are in Christ. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But you are rich. See the eternal wealth that you have. Your table may be bare on planet Earth, but the table is never empty where you're going to be sitting for eternity. The choicest meats, and my favorite verse of the Bible, the wine flows like a river. Think about that. We don't have livers in heaven. So, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I, eight minutes. Let's go. Let's go. I know you're poor, but you are rich. And I, I, now, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. I also know, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Do you know why? The economic turn that occurred in Smyrna towards Christians did in fact occur. They were sold out by the very people whom God gave the Old Testament to and the promises of the Messiah in which they believed. It was the Jews. The Jews were the only people group in the Roman Empire that had struck a deal with the Roman Empire. They were the only group of people because of their temple and their religious laws they had convinced and had an edict signed into Roman law that they were exempt from Caesar worship. They didn't have to go to the temple of Caesar in Smyrna and say, Corios, Caesar. And Christians that came out, the gospel was always preached in the Jewish synagogue first because... The promises were given to the Jewish people. They should have recognized the Messiah. And many of them did. And many of them got saved. And a church was started. But the Christians still enjoyed this same exemption. If you know your history, the Christian fish and all these different Christian signs from the first century, all these come out of this great persecution. It was the Jews who began to to talk to the Roman leaders and say, these people, because the Christians were just seen as a, a sect of Judaism, enjoying those same legal exemptions. But the Jews, and do you know the difference between gossip and slander? Gossip is when you say something about someone when they're not in your presence, not in the group you're talking, when you're talking about somebody else and they're not present, and you're saying things that you don't know whether they're true or not. 
A good example of, hey, did you hear they moved their wedding up? I bet she's pregnant. That's gossip. You shouldn't do it. Amen? Slander is much more malicious. Slander is when the motivation of your heart is to assassinate the character of someone else in a way where everybody you're talking to no longer like. They don't give them a jury or, or, or sit, sit down and get to the bottom. They just, you're just turning everybody's hearts and minds against someone else. That's slander. The Jews were slandering the Christians. This is why employers were firing Christian employees. This is why no one would go to Christian businesses any longer. And even in the courts now, the, the, the Roman official said, you've got, you're, you're no longer uh, in the sect of Judaism. They're saying they don't, you don't belong to them. They don't want any part of you. So you are required by law to Corios Caesar. This is where Corios uh, Caesar, no, Jesus is Lord. They wouldn't do it. But it was the slander of the Jews that brought all this persecution upon them and causes Jesus to say they are a synagogue of Satan. Now remember, Jesus was a Jew. He's talking to John, uh, to John the Revelator who was a Jew. This is not anti-Semitic, but the Jews in Smyrna had turned against God's people and thus God's word. So God says, these are not people who are on my team. They are like their father. Did you know when we lie? Look up John 8, 44. Jesus says, we're just like our father, the devil. Why? Because he was the first to bend the truth. He was the first to deceive. He was the first to construct a false narrative and, and lead people astray, which is what we do every time we lie. We follow in his footsteps. That's why all false ideologies and systems are called the doctrines of demons. Because they come from, from a point of origin, which is none other than Satan himself. These Jews, God calls a synagogue of Satan for how they are coming against Christians. Who they should have seen as brothers in at least their Old Testament faith. Verse 10. Do not, here's Jesus says, do not fear. What you are about. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, if you pray hard enough, I'm going to get you out of this. How many of you have been there? Some cell bars closed. And, oh, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll be a good boy. Jesus doesn't say, give me three Hail Marys. Right? Whip your back a few times. Pray two hours a day for the next week and you won't have to go through this. No, he says, suffering's coming. But you don't have to be afraid of it. Watch. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. And this 10 days is not a uh, 10 actual days with mornings and evenings. The uh, number 10 appears in the Bible 250 sometimes, like the number 3, like the number 7. It symbolizes uh, a complete and holistically perfect amount of time. God says, you're not going to suffer one 
second more than I require you to. Oh, that brings me glory in my will. There is a perfect time of testing and tribulation that you are going to endure. Watch what he says next. Be faithful unto death. One of the great stories that comes out of the church of Smyrna, because this happened. There's a young man named Polycarp who was actually a disciple of John the Revelator. I mentioned him in the introduction to this series. He was a a young man when this, in fact, many people believe this letter was delivered to Polycarp. And Polycarp was the man who read this original letter to the church in Smyrna. It was John who put his hands on Polycarp and ordained him to be the senior leader of the church. He was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And the day came, the persecution worsened. The church itself begged Polycarp. The persecution was getting so bad, and he was the leader of this thing, and they didn't want to lose him. So they said, go away. So John exiled, or Polycarp exiled himself about 20 miles away in hiding because the persecution got so bad. But they found him. Somebody talked. Somebody squealed. They found him. And so when they come up there, are you Polycarp? Yes. Are you the bishop of the church of Smyrna? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Uh, we're here to arrest you and, and take you back to, to serve you with a death sentence. And Polycarp said, before we go, please come in and let me feed you and and, and give you water. I'm sure you're hungry and thirsty after your journey. I just love Polycarp. (laughs) He gets back to Smyrna. The proconsul of Smyrna says, he's 86 years old at this time. The proconsul of Smyrna says to him, I respect your old age. Please don't make us do this. Just recant. Christ, just say, Curios Caesar. That Caesar is Lord and nothing has to occur. We we don't have to take your life. Polycarp stands in the presence of all the dignitaries, of all the smartest people in the room, all the most important people. And he says, 86 years God's been good to me. There's no way I can turn my back on him now. To have that kind of courage. This is my prayer. I hope we never see that kind of persecution in this country. But if we do, God, give us grace to not fear what stands before us because they're going to try to find... Here's what they did to Polycarp. He said, no way I can recant. And he said, Polycarp, the proconsul says, Polycarp, the wild beasts are hungry. Again, they had the largest arena. We're going to take you out and we're going to let the wild beasts tear you apart. If you don't recant. Polycarp says, bid the wild beasts to come. It infuriated the proconsul, and he says, forget the wild beasts. We're going to burn you alive. We're going to put you on a pyre and we're going to burn you alive in front of a great crowd. Polycarp still will not recant. So they build the pyre. They put Polycarp on the pyre. And before they set it on fire, you know, they would bind the the person to the pyre so they can't run away. Polycarp said, your ropes are not necessary. I'm not going anywhere. 
And he stood there unbound on the pyre. And they lit the pyre. And the wind was blowing hard that day. Uh, and it was exacerbating the flame, which only prolonged the misery of Polycarp instead of the flames rapidly consuming him where he could die in uh, 10, 15 minutes. It was just burning the bottom part of his body. And he stood there unbound in agony. And as he saw that his time was not, was going to be uh, elongated. He took his last opportunity to preach a sermon to all who stood there about how God is good and God is great and his will be done. And he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those who are watching him burn alive. To the point where the Roman soldiers, the professional executioners, begin to stab him with their swords to get him to shut up because the flames were not going to take him out fast enough. And his sermon continued forward. Why does God say you don't have to fear? Regardless what they put before you, we're going to take your head. We're going to burn you alive. We're going to let wild animals tear you apart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will. Death is not frightening to the Christian. Aren't you sick of that old song, everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die? For Christians, we've, we've studied Philippians. Death is Gain. We don't have to fear. Jesus said, don't be frightened of those who can kill the body. Be frightened of the one who can kill the soul. Like Polycarp, like the church in Smyrna, suffering may come, persecution may come in our generation to ourselves. And we have to be ready and we shouldn't fear. Because he who faces, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Physical death in our reality is simply a doorway into eternal life. This crown, and there's five crowns. Put that up on the screen real quick. There's five crowns spoken of in the Bible. Each subject attached to a crown is a beautiful picture of the eternal reality that we are all going to experience forever. Death is just the first step towards permanent rejoicing and glory and righteousness in Christ Jesus. These are not crowns of kings and queens. These are the laurel wreaths of the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games and all the Greek games that were played. It showed that a person had run a race and conquered victoriously, so they received the crown. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, even in death, a crown of life awaits. So my hope and my prayer is we get to be those first people in the great hall of faith. That in faith, Trust Jesus, depend on Jesus, study every, memorize every word he says that we may conquer and take the city in his name. But if that is not God's will, 
We have to be ready to stare even death in the face, to stare imprisonment in the face, to keep our doors open so people can worship Jesus, even if the government says to shut it down. I told you during COVID, never again. Never again will the doors of this church be shut for worshipers who want to come and proclaim the death of Christ and his eternal life until he returns. In Revelation 21, we're not going to get into any of that. But as we step through the doors of mortality into immortal from corruptible to incorruptible, we receive a new body. Hair will never fall out from chemotherapy again. Eyes of people in their late 40s are going to be fixed. No glad, no readers. No more, right? All this pain and suffering. What's the point? Why does God allow? Because to be in that moment fixed and perfect in the glorious presence of your maker. Right? When all that is broken is put back together right again. The joy, the rejoicing that will occur. It's the crown given to us. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is one you've really got to watch out to. It's mentioned three more times in Revelation in chapters 20 and 21. The first death is nothing, especially for those in Christ. But the second death, chapter 20 and 21 says, is the final death. Gehenna, the final resting place, the final hell where all those outside of Christ will spend eternity separated from the grace of God right now. And, and people are so blind. The common grace of God is we would be so much worse than we are outside of the common grace of God. But even his common grace will be removed in a lifetime of turmoil and free will thinking in darkness and gnashing of teeth will be the existence of those who suffer the second death. Hear the word of the Lord. Some of you have suffered and some of you have had the religious thought, because it's religious thinking that brings these thoughts into our If something is wrong, if something's going wrong in my life, I must have done something wrong. I must have offended God. At the base nature of our sinful nature, just like Job's friends, Job, for 30 chapters, what terrible friends. What did you do wrong? You have really made God mad. But suffering is not, our suffering in this world is not punishment. Jesus was punished for our sins. We are free from sin and death. Suffering is to bring steadfastness 
and perseverance and endurance and to purify us, which brings more persecution. Because when the holy is present in the midst of the unholy, the unholy just can't stand it. And all the more does persecution come. Let's pray. Father, we hope we will never be asked to close the door of this church again. We hope to remain a free people living quietly and humbly in this world, enjoying the freedoms that we have had for so long. Father, in faith, we ask you to make us the people that makes your name great and conquers kingdoms and cities in your name. But Father, if it is not so, and your will is different for us in this generation, if our lives are to look like those in Smyrna, Father, give us the grace to courageously face whatever trials, poverty, and tribulation may come. May we stand on the shoulders of Polycarp and all those who have gone before and die well in your name for your glory. It is in the name of Jesus we all pray and say, Amen.